On February 23rd, 2011, Ezra Iron told her husband Oscar that she was popping to the shop to pick up milk. The idea was that Ezra would run to the shop and her husband would take the car that they shared, a grey Renault Twingo, for the remainder of the day. Ezra left at 7.20am and she never returned home. This is an episode of Local Voices, a community podcast produced by the Echo newspaper which takes a deep dive into the news that matters the most to you. I'm your host, Hayden Moore. Angarda Shia Khan are still appealing for information in relation to Ezra's disappearance. A key element of the case is that she left her home at Collinstown Grove in Clondalkin at 7.20am. CCTV footage picked her up at the Power City Roundabout at 8am, but this is a journey that should take less than 5 minutes. So there's a 35 minute discrepancy there. Ezra was last seen wearing black leggings, a dark top and white Nike runners, and as for the car, the grey Renault Twingo, it ended up 30 kilometres away. This year marks 10 years since Ezra's mysterious disappearance, and her sister, Berna Fidan, joins me on the line now. Thanks very much for your time, Berna. Thank you. I appreciate being given the time. I know. Obviously, this week, this past week, is the 10-year is the anniversary since Ezra Iron disappeared, um, your sister. This week must be quite tough, has it been? It's been extremely tough and extremely devastating because I haven't been, this is the first year that I haven't been able to come over to Ireland to actually run the appeals myself. But, um, you know, people have rallied around and I'm so grateful for them. You know, people in Clondarkin and in Bray putting up posters on my behalf, which I can't thank them enough because I know they've been out and about. They've been sending me pictures as well, showing me that they've, you know, put the posters up, which I'm so, so grateful for. At least that way, I just feel like something's being done. But I just feel, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like a loss because I'm never here this time of year. I mean, for the past 10 years, I've always been there. And 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 it does upset me that I haven't been able to do it myself. And, I, and it makes me feel oh, angry in a way as well. Um, you know, I'm... I'm upset anyway all the time, but you know this is this has been a, a more trying time, and with unfortunately with COVID and the restrictions that I can't travel over, and even to be with you know the rest of my family because of restrictions of going around to see them as well that hasn't helped. So you know we've all been in our own homes like, and it's not been good. So you'd head over to Dublin every single like on the 23rd of February every single year would you and you'd put up posters I know I normally spend about three or well a good week there uh, I normally arrive a few days before and sort of leave a couple of days after um, so I can sort of cover as much area as I can each year I mean at the beginning I actually stayed over for nearly three months on and off um, running all the appeals and I lived in my sister's house during that period of time um but it got to a stage where I couldn't stay there any longer, obviously. I mean, I've got kids of my own um, that I had to come back for and work and everything else. But then I travelled at least twice a year um, thereafter. And would like you know when you when you do come home, would you be would you would you be retracing Ezra's last known steps? Was it was that something that you that you'd do? When I go 
when I come to Ireland. Yeah, sorry, when I say home, sorry. Yeah, yeah, when you come to Ireland. <laughs> home is yeah. your home. Home is not yeah. my, this sorry, is my home. In when London. you come to Dublin, yeah. Yeah, when I come to Dublin, I do. I mean, I go through literally from her house. Um, and we start our journey around the time she would have left her home, sort of quarter past seven in the morning. And especially on that day as well, to see what the traffic was like, to see how long it would take to get to Bray. And that's always been a question in our mind because it took her too long to get to Bray. This was our issue. Um, her husband always said that she'd left home about quarter past seven in the morning um, and that she was only supposed to nip to the shops. So, you know, she was going to go pick up a few bits and then he was going to take the car for the rest of the day um, and head to the gym on the way home. But and that would have given her time just to literally nip up the road by what she wanted. And he could have had the car back, you know, half past seven, quarter, quarter to eight and then gone to work for eight o'clock. But, um, yeah, and unfortunately, when she left at that time, there's no CCTV. This is what our issue is. There's no CCTV showing us which direction her car went until it hit the Power City roundabout. And that was about just before 8 o'clock, about 10 to 5 to 8, which makes it a long while from quarter past 7 to even 10 to 8. It's a four-minute drive. We've done that so many times thinking, okay, so we've taken all different directions to see, you know, if we've gone the back road to that roundabout, how long would it take? And it's never taken more than five, six minutes. Um, you know, and so why did it take over half an hour to get there? Um, and then from that point where her registration was read at that Power City roundabout to Bray, then this time scale is about right because it takes about 25 minutes, half an hour to get to Bray, which is about the right sort of time scale. But our issue is always what happened near her home that it took her car so long to get to that roundabout. Yeah. Like why did it, why did, why did it take so long to get to the roundabout? And then why did she end up 30 kilometers away in, yeah. in Bray? Are you, yeah. is it something that you're concerned about that it wasn't maybe necessarily even her in the car by the time it got to Bray? Well, this, this is this is our issue, you see, because we've always questioned. We've said, you know, was she flagged down? Did she stop for something? Did someone jump in her car? You know, and was the car eventually dumped in Bray? Because when it gets to Bray, um, it enters the car park um, at where the Star Amusement Centre is. Um, and... At that time, the Star Amusement car park was a lot smaller than it is today. There was a lot of derelict buildings alongside it, which have now, you know, over the years been knocked down and, you know, that car park has got bigger. And the CCTV was only visible to the front of the actual amusement centre. It would, you know, it didn't see the whole of the car park. So you saw the car coming into the car park, then pass all the the, the CCTV that was taking the car park. And then it sort of, but then the gentleman who was showing me the CCTV from the Star Amusement did say, Bernice, keep watching because her car leaves again. So it was less than 30 seconds the car was in that car park and then left. And it's a one-way system. So it, it's gone up the one-way system. And then the car came back down Convent Avenue back onto the Strand and that's where it had a near collision with a Skoda Octavia, sort of a grey silver colour. Um, and we've always begged for that driver to come forward because if you've had a near collision with someone, you're going to look round to see 
who was driving that car. You might have even turned around and sworn at the person or, you know, what the hell are you doing sort of thing. Um, but that driver's never come forward. So we've always begged, you know, come forward and tell us who was who do you think was driving that car? Did you did you get a visual of that person? Because the only CCTV that shows her car is on a pole, it's a guardie pole that watches the strand and it's on a swing motion. So by the time it swung round, it was after 10 a.m. And it, you know, by which time that car park was full with you know, cars and vans and whatever. But when she got to the car park, well, when her, not she, I shouldn't say my sister got to the car park, when my sister's car got to the car park um, and they showed me that footage, um, it was actually virtually empty at half past eight. There was, it was just scattered with a few cars here and there. There may have been like half a dozen cars or so. But the footage that the Gardee show on Crime Call is a packed out car park with lots of people around. So it's later on in the day. So that's why, you know, and and I said, well, that's that's not relevant because, yes, her car park is her car's parked there. But who came out of that car? Because it was in a blind spot that nobody was able to see who came out the car in, you know, at half past eight in the morning. I know, like obviously, when you go through all the all the clues, and like there really isn't a whole lot, isn't it? It's just no. the CCTV footage, and I know there was keys as well that turned up in a chip shop, wasn't it, in Clondalkin? And, and yeah, that was a year later, because my sister went missing in February, and I was there till late June. I came back to the UK in late June, and my mum was really concerned that I was over there so much because she'd already lost a daughter. And we didn't know where she was. She was scared for me to be over there for such long periods of time. And her health was deteriorating. So she said to me, please don't go back for a while, you know. Um, so I, I, I didn't go back until the anniversary, the first anniversary. Um, and when I did go back and we were putting up posters again in, in Neilstown, and McCarthy's chippy and then my daughter went in put the poster up and the gentleman came running out afterwards because we were still in the car park area putting up more posters and he said oh look I've got your sister's keys and I said and you know my hands were shaking and I said what do you mean you've got my sister's keys how do you know they're her keys he goes well it's got a picture on it so a key ring on there and there was a photo of my sister and and her baby and on the other side it was her husband and the baby and um, so I said, well, how long have you had them? So he goes, well, it was before Christmas. Now, so I'd left 2011, June, and these keys were found before Christmas the same year. Um, so, you know, my first reaction was, why didn't you go to the Gardee? And they, they were like, well, we were waiting for you to come so I could give them to you. He said they were hanging on a hook for a while. Um, he goes, because I didn't actually notice the key ring at first. He goes, we were just cleaning up the shop after an, a night shift. And he goes, so I just picked up the keys, put them on the hook, thinking somebody will claim them. And he goes, and it was like quite a while after when somebody turned around and said, you know, why are these keys still here? And then I realized whose keys they were. And he goes, so I put them in my office. Um, and he goes, and I've been waiting for you to come. But unfortunately, because so much time had passed, their CCTV in the shop had been wiped over. So again, we had no idea how they actually appeared in that shop or who dropped them. And, you know, and this was just up the road from her house, you know, 
technically these were the shops that she was supposedly going to that morning, but never got there. The fact that there's no physical traces of Ezra, but there's all these little kind of nuggets, it's what, mm-hmm. it's just, it makes it so, I suppose that probably makes it even more, all the more difficult, does it? And of I know, course. like, even your, for yourself, trying to go through all these details over and over and over again with the way you have, is mm-hmm. that, that must take quite a toll on you, does it? Do you know, I think my brain feels like it's sizzled sometimes because I just keep repeating myself, repeating myself, and I keep, you know, going over and over different scenarios in my head of what could have happened. And it it doesn't put you in a good place, put it that way. Um, I've been in very dark places myself, um, and I had to literally go back to work for sanity. I had that for, you know, four or five months off at the beginning, um, from work and then I thought you know because I was at home constantly online trying to find information trying to do this trying to do that and then I was literally driving myself mad and I thought I need some normality back in my life and I actually went back to work for that reason um yeah it's it's not good it's not a good time I, I want to. I just. I want to kind of get um, a general understanding to the the like what led up to to that point. I suppose, and I suppose I, I want to kind of get an understanding of, of who Ezra was. And uh, so, can I just ask you, like, what kind of a character is Ezra? You know, Ezra is an over friendly, <laughs> very talkative. You cannot shut her up for love nor money, and she would befriend everybody around her. You know, she was this very outgoing character um laughs jokes you know she would if someone said hi to her walking down she would say hi stop stop and talk to them she was that sort of character um very people's person you know she loved being around people she you know she mingled with everybody she was you know she loved life and um so that's what makes it so strange I mean she she was always on the phone to us and she was very artistic. She, she had plans to have a fashion show in Ireland because she was very much into her art and design. And, but um, I don't know, every, everyone's shocked. Everybody's shocked, you know, her friends, even in London, you know, but we only spoke to her last week. How's this possible? Um, I spoke to her because Esra was here every six weeks anyway in London. Every six to seven weeks, she'd pop over to see mum and dad, um, you know, because dad had been very ill for a very, very long time anyway. He had a stroke at 50, so he had a very, you know, bad health. Um, he was bedridden for the f- last few years of his life. So that's why Ezra always came down um, very often to see see mum and dad anyway. And, um, and even if it was just for a, sh- a weekend, She'd make sure she came down. She was on the phone to us all the time, if not me, my daughter. So for us to lose touch completely, it just tells me something horrible has happened to her. Because like one of the conclusions that people jump to is is suicide, and that's something that you always do shoot down because of the fact that she, of the way she did love life so much. Well, that's it. I mean, she had so many plans. You know, she had so many plans. You know, ahead of her and. When when I spoke to her on the Sunday before she went missing, she was saying, oh, do you know what? When I came down in January, I forgot to buy a load of bits. She goes, can you just make sure that, you know, give them to mum to bring? And she was giving me a shopping list of herbs and spices and bits she'd forgotten. And um, she said, oh, you know, she goes, I'm going to treat the mums because she'd invited mum and my uh, her mother-in-law. 
she said they're going to be here on my birthday which is on the 1st of March so next week um and she said you know I've booked a spa so we're going to have a girly spa day and I've booked a nice posh restaurant for us so she goes I'm so looking forward to having had a birthday with mum for ages and um then all of a sudden to disappear the day before the mums are traveling over that's just like how why you know, they have always gone on, you know, the guardian always went down the line of suicide because my dad had passed away. But then I've always said my dad's passing was never a shock to any of us. You know, he was very ill for a long time. And the last few years, Ezra traveled down so many times because he was in hospital and the doctor said, oh, he might not make it through. But dad always pulled through, you know, one way or another. And um, but I made the call to Ezra before dad passed away and I said you know what as I said he's really not good now I said I don't think he's going to make it this time and she came down and she was there for his passing he acknowledged that she was there you know she stayed for the funeral she you know she came went back over to Ireland then came again late December and then January um so she was back and forth so you know we we prayed that dad was going to go peacefully because he didn't know um who was around him most of the time he was you know the doctors would come in he was on morphine he was on drugs just to keep him out of pain and it was a stage where we was just praying that he was going to go peacefully so his passing was not a shock yes we were sad you know don't get me wrong we we loved our father deeply and and um he, but it wasn't a shock for us so we'd already prepared ourselves to for his passing um so, yeah, I'm, I'm obviously it probably affected Esther more because she was away from the family, you know, and that's why we made sure that we was on the phone to her all the time to make sure she was OK. And why she came down so often after just to make sure, you know, she was with mum to support mum as well. But, you know, for her to then book tickets for mum and invite mum over and things like that. Well, why would she do any of that? She even, you know, if she was in the mindset of suicide. I can't understand how somebody would be able to do that. Of course. And I know, obviously, she had moved to Clondalkin from London. Um, yeah. but how, how long was she in Clondalkin before she disappeared? Um, around four years. It was about four years. Her husband had got a job um, in Ireland. I mean, she had a job here and, you know, they, they sort of jacked it all in here just to try it out. She was very reluctant to the beginning to go over to Ireland because she's a very family orientated person anyway she didn't want to be far from the family but we did you know you know we she did say you know it's only 45 minutes on a, on a you know plane and I can pop over often enough and um and then it was literally you know it might be a different lifestyle for us it might be better for our future so you know she went along and she said if we don't like it we'll just come back anyway um, I mean, she didn't like it a great deal because it took her, you know, she couldn't get used to not being around family as often as she'd like. She's um, very family orientated. Very, very much so, you know, and that's why, and when, especially when she fell pregnant, she was like, oh, I don't want Emmy to grow up without knowing the family. I think it's time for us to come back. And her husband was waiting for a transfer. So they could come back, but obviously, unfortunately, she went missing before the transfer happened. Um, yeah, so, I mean, she wasn't miserable there, don't get me wrong, but she did prefer living in London near friends and family that 
she grew up with. And was the last time that you spoke to Ezra on that Sunday before she disappeared? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was the last time. Um, you know, she and this is this is what I'm saying. I mean, she explained that she'd arranged everything and her neighbour had seen her as well the day before and she'd, you know, she'd spoken to the neighbour and said she was getting house ready for the mums to come over. And then, you know, the neighbour also said in the morning of her disappearance that um, her husband, when he left for work at seven, her car was still in the car park and she said I was in the drive and she go, um, she was in the front room. Um, the wife was in the front room and she said, you know, it was not long after that. She goes, I did see Yesra sort of nipping her car to go. Um, but then, you know, even they were shocked, you know, because she was always very, I don't know, doting on her son. And she goes, she was always with Emin and, you know, going to mother and toddler groups and arts and craft groups, you know, because she liked socialising. But I don't know. And that that day, the twenty third of February, twenty eleven. Like, what, what was your recollection of that day? Like, when was the first time? Like, what was the first thing you heard? It was in the evening. <clears throat> it was sort of probably about six o'clock ish that evening. Um, her husband phoned my mum's house before that, uh, probably about five or whatever, and. Um, said that he was getting a bit worried now because Esther had gone out in the morning, hadn't come back. He didn't want to phone earlier to because he didn't want to worry anybody. Um, and my brother phoned me and said, you've got to phone Ezra, you know, find out what's going on because he's saying that Ezra left this morning, hasn't come back. Have you heard from her? And I said, well, no, I haven't. And normally my sister's one of these people, if she's going to be busy that way, she's uh, that day, and she's going to go out anywhere, she'd let us know. So... She'd phone me or my daughter or my mum and say, you know, if you try and get hold of me tomorrow, I'm not going to be around because I'm in, you know, I'll be in blah, blah place. So we always knew where she was. And um, so for her to actually go for the day and not tell anybody, that's out of the norm for her anyway. And um, so my brother called me and then I called Ursula and I said, what's going on? And he said, well, I, I didn't want to worry anybody, but he goes, this morning she left, he goes, I, I told her that I was going to take the car for the day so I could go to the gym. And she told me to sort of, while I'm getting ready for work, keep an eye on the baby. And she was going to just nip out to the shops, buy a few bits, so she wouldn't have to go out again because the weather was cold and she didn't want to take the baby out. And he goes, and she just hasn't come back. He goes, I've tried to find the guardian that said, because she's an adult, I have to wait 48 hours. He goes, and I, I just don't know what to do. Um. So I said, look, just go to the Gardaí station anyway. Forget about them saying to you, wait 48 hours. I said, at least tell them to find your, find the car. I said, you know, take a photo of her. Let them find the car at least. And I got a call back about 11 o'clock that evening to say they'd found the car in Bray. And they were doing a helicopter search around the area. Um, but my concern was, I mean, I said, you know, if something has happened to, you know, on that mountain anywhere, I said, you know, so much time has passed. Um, you know, if, God forbid that if she was dead up there, you know, her body would have already gone cold. Um, but they said, oh, their senses would pick up anything anyway and whatever. So, um, but 
they were never able to find anything in Bray. There was no trace of my sister ever being in Bray. The only thing they said was <clears throat> that they had a ping from her mobile phone in the area. But I turned around and I said to them, but it's a mobile phone. Anyone could have that mobile phone. You know, that's the whole idea of it being a mobile phone. It's not attached to that one person. And um, Was our phone so, ever found? No. The phone was never found. Um, I've, my mum was obviously due to fly out the next day, and that was the next flight available anyway. So I took my mum's place, and I, and I sort of came over to Ireland because my mum was in no fit state to travel when she heard the news. So with Ezra's mother-in-law, we met up and we um, travelled over, and and I came down to Bray straight away, and the car was still actually parked where it would been it had been left and um eventually that same day it was about four o'clock in the afternoon when the guardie actually so it was on the Thursday afternoon where the guardie took the car away um and it took them 10 days to get back to us to tell us that her purse was in the boot of that car and and I've always questioned you know we're not talking about a big handbag it's literally a small purse where you can put folded notes. It would fit a bank card. So it's just a little bit bigger size than a bank card. And if you're just going to the shops, that's all you're picking up in your hand, you know. And why would it be in the boot? So that question's always been in my head, you know. I know it was only a small car, but then Ezra wasn't really a very big person. And could she have been in the boot? <clears throat> and did it fall out of her pocket? Unfortunately, that's that's gone through my head as well, because I just can't see the logic of the purse coming out the boot of the car. Obviously, it, it, ten years have passed, and but it's important that people know it is still actually an active investigation as well. Yeah, they are really looking at the case, thankfully, um, and they do follow up anybody that comes forward, thinking, you know, I may have seen something or I may have heard something. So they're not sort of sweeping it under the carpet, which is a good thing. Um, you know, at least that's positive. I'm, I know that they're not sort of discarding anybody with any information. Um, so that's why I say to everybody, you know, anything you have at all, please reach out because that little information may actually end up being something big for us. I'd also like, um, basically, if anyone knew Ezra that I don't know or haven't already spoken to, because obviously Ezra must have met a lot of people over there that I don't know about, um, you know, other than her friends, her usual friends, work colleagues that have already reached out to me. Um, she may have, you know, known other people in mother-toddler groups and arts decor groups and whatever, you know, that, I haven't maybe spoken to or they haven't, you know, spoken to me or whatever. If they could come maybe reach out to me, um, if they remember anything or what was the last conversation they had with Esra. Um, yeah, I'm clutching at straws. I'm literally clutching at straws because we're so desperate for answers now. You know, 10 years is a long, long time and it's it doesn't get any easier. It really doesn't get any easier. So I was going to say, does it just get harder and harder? Well, it does because, you know, 10 years down the line and we're still going around in the same circle, you know, we're just going round and round with no answers, no clues. And when does it end? You know, when does it end? How do you, like, when there are so little answers, how do you, how do you hold on to hope, really? 
It's because it's the unknown, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, you know, people are saying, oh, she might, you know, she must have passed away. And uh, do I expect to find her alive after 10 years with no contact, no nothing? Probably not. But the fact that we found nothing still gives me that little glimmer of hope that she might still be out there. But it hurts me to think that if she is being taken any any way that I'm just hoping she's not suffering. You know, we hear of women being trapped in places and kept in places for years and years and they come they come out and um but then that would be torture, mental torture, wouldn't it? If or even physical. So but we just don't know and the thought that she could be in pain or she could be suffering hurts more. All the all the like going through all the possibilities and obviously we've mentioned loads today um and the, all the all the things that you go through trying to just retrace it and trying to think what could have happened um like this must have really like a massive impact on on your on, on her family like her her husband and her and her and her son and and just your family as well of course i mean it's it's impacted all of us i mean her son bless him he's grown up thinking mum went to the shop and got lost i mean you know it's, it's, it's had health implications on the family. I mean, my mum's holding on for dear life, bless her. She's so frail now and she's not had good health anyway. You know, since Ezra's disappearance, she's had cancer, she's had stroke. She's actually just getting over COVID, bless her. She ended up with COVID as well, but refused to go into hospital. She was adamant she wouldn't go into hospital um, because she goes, if I go in, there's no way I'm coming out again. So she actually, um, we actually bought her an oximeter and an oxygen tank and treated her at home. And thankfully, she's fighting strong, you know. What an amazing and woman. How, is, is she, what's keeping her going? That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? She she wants answers because, I've you know, the only thing she keeps saying is, um, if I go, I'll end up going with my eyes open and not knowing what's happened to my baby. And I think that is really keeping her going. God, Just, it's hard to, it's hard she to wants to know. Yeah, she wants to know. I mean, my brother had a heart attack at the age of 47 a couple of years back. And and it's all the stress. You know, he, whereas my brother, I mean, he's he's more in the way of the only way he could get through this is to accept that Ezra had passed away because he said, I can't think that if she's been kept somewhere and suffering, he goes, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. So, he, you know, he had to dig down deep and convince himself that she'd passed away for him to actually be able to get some peace. But um, but I think it, but he just bottles it up, you know. Although he says that, I don't think he actually mentally maybe realizes in the back he's just you know it just goes around in your heads it's hard it's hard are our um are, are her husband or ezra's husband and son still living in clondalkin no no they live in london oh, they they live in, yeah yeah they live in london they moved back because um he said that it'd be hard for him to cope with emin on his own over there so he wanted to be near family yeah, yeah. I know, obviously, 
um, you you have an email address as well, um, missingezra at gmail.com. And yeah. people have emailed you with, with tidbits of information and stuff like that. I know a few years ago you ran into a few things where people were giving you false leads. Is that still happening? Um, no, thankfully that stopped. Um, that was, you know, that wasn't good because, you know, it, it brings up, uh, it, it was, how can I put this? It was, it, it's so shocking when you get news the way it was portrayed to us at the time. Um, but when the, you know, when the guardie looked into it um, and then they turned around and said, no, this, this isn't true um, because, you know, we had people that are trying to blame each other for things, you know, and apparently they do this with every case that comes about and, you know, and then and it's not fair on us because it, you know, our, our hopes rise up thinking, you know, you know, something's going to come out of this and then just to be dashed again. So, you know, yes, we, we follow up everything. Don't get me wrong. I, you know, I'm not saying don't contact me, but, you know, with relevant information. Yeah. Cause obviously oh, yeah. like you have to think about the person on, on the end of the email, like opening that and, and like, like for yourself and it's just to, to be purposely putting out false information like that is just complete lack of empathy and no remorse. It's, and well, no, uh, and you know it it wasn't fair. And we we did have another gentleman come forward not too long ago, um, and he he said he wasn't in a good place himself at the time. So um, and he goes and it, he didn't think it was relevant with anything because he hadn't heard the news um, about Ezra. And it was only on one of these forums that I actually put her posters. And when he saw it and he'd read it and he thought, you know what, maybe this might, you know, it might be something. And he did come forward saying that he does remember a woman, you know, in Bray area calling for help at one stage. And it was in a very bushed area. And he'd asked if he could help. And the woman just said, you know, whereabouts am I? And he'd, he'd explained, but, but he hadn't seen her. He couldn't see her. Um, he said because she was quite sort of in in some dense area um, and he did call out to her and said like did you need any help and so she said no no I'm fine and and I said to him you know he goes it may not be of any relevance but he goes maybe it's an area that should be looked at and and it was between Bray and uh, Bray and Greystone's area so he, you know, and I said, are you willing to talk to Guardian? The Guardian interviewed him and said, you know what, we will look at the area. So they did square off an area and do like a drone search. And, you know, they had quite a few, few people up there to have a look, but they didn't find anything. But, you know, but it shows that they are willing to look and they're willing to follow up. How recent was that? Um, a few months ago. Okay, so like it, like it's still people are still coming forward today, and yeah. it's, that's good yeah. to see. And like, if people do have any information at all, absolutely reach out to you, and I'll, I'll have the contact details for the guards as well. Of course, I mean, the there's confidential this. lines. They can, you know, if they don't want to talk to me, find the confidential line or go to the guardie direct. You know, but any information that they may think it may be small could, as I said, you know, lead to something much bigger for us. So please don't hold on to the information. I mean, 
I believe somebody knows something. I just cannot get it round my head that somebody disappears off the face of the earth with nobody seeing, nobody hearing, nobody knowing anything. I believe somebody's sitting on information and they just need to reach down deep into their heart and come out and think, you know what, we need to talk. Yeah. Hopefully someone listening to this um, knows something or has some sort of information or can even just share the podcast around to try to get the message out there. I mean, it might reach the right person eventually to say, you know what, I do remember something. But, I mean, that Skoda driver, I just cannot believe that we haven't been able to trace who the Skoda driver is. I mean, the CCTV is so rubbish, you know, that it, it can't read the number plate on it can just make out the make and model of that car um you know you can't even read the number plate you can't even see images in the cars to see who's driving and this is why i've always questioned you know was ezra actually driving that car when it reached prey because i said you need to prove to me she was still in the car yeah and yeah of course and obviously the car was driving so erratically as well that yeah. It doesn't really. And she's not that sort of driver. She's such a cautious driver anyway. Um, and if, if you're, you know, if you've cut somebody up and you, and I, and I saw that footage so many times, you see the car coming out, virtually cutting up, going behind, then Ezra's car ends up behind. So the Skoda literally then fast forwards and goes on. And Ezra's. Fo- car sort of ends up behind but then it seems to like Ezra's car looks like it's following it bumper to bumper and I'm thinking well what woman would do that anyway you know if you've just cut somebody up you'd actually hold back you wouldn't go bumper to bumper with this car as if like you know you're looking for a fight yeah when you think when you think of it like if you're ever driving your car and you have a little bit of a run in with someone on the road the first thing you do is here let me go to look at this person <laughs> like yeah, everyone yeah, does it of course so. of course and that's why we've always said you know did the person see who the who the driver was you know was there one person two people in the car we just don't know Bernard, i know it's um like you, you really do the rounds and you've been you speak so much about this and um you, like it must be exhausting for you seriously and um i, I don't i don't know how you have the will to my, keep going i think my brain is sh- literally shriveled um it does it's mentally exhausting it really is mentally exhausting um but what can I do I can't let it go you know she's out there somewhere god forbid dead or alive she's out there you know and somebody knows I just had to say thanks so much for joining me on local voices thank you thank you and I appreciate you having me on the show Berna appeals for anyone with information to email missingezra at gmail.com. That's M-I-S-S-I-N-G-E-S-R-A at gmail.com. Or contact the National Missing Persons Line on 1800 911 The Garda Confidential Line on 1800-666-111. Or Ronanstown Garda Station on 01-666-7700. These details will also be in the description of the show. Thank you for listening to another episode of Local Voices. If you haven't already, be sure to follow the show on your streaming platform of choice to never miss a minute. Or if you listen through echo.ie, bookmark the page and check back each week for the latest release.